I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Mother Nature has truly outdone herself today. It's beautiful outside and very appropriate for Earth Day. If you're in Nashville, you're probably making plans to head out to get some green space in. Hit up a public park, take a nice walk, a quick run, or a fun bike ride on one of the many greenways our city offers. Today, we're going to talk about that green space, what it is exactly, and how it can be more equitable so that everyone can enjoy it. But first, we had some breaking news last night. Oscar Smith was scheduled to be executed at 6 p.m. About two hours earlier, he had eaten what was supposed to be his last meal, a double bacon cheeseburger, apple pie, and vanilla ice cream. Then, barely an hour before it was to take place, the execution was halted. Joining me now to talk about what happened and what this means is WPLN criminal justice reporter Samantha Max. Sam, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Khalil. So as we discussed on our show yesterday, this was supposed to be the state's first execution since the pandemic hit in 2020. What happened? Honestly, we really don't know much of what happened. Um, just about an hour before the execution was supposed to take place, we got an email from the governor's office, just a few brief sentences saying that there was some sort of, quote, oversight in preparation for lethal injection and that the governor was going to be granting a reprieve until after they could address the Department of Correction protocol for lethal injection. Um, what we know about lethal injection is that for a long time there have been a lot of questions about how it works and whether it could potentially be really painful and even a violation of, you know, the Constitution and people's protection from cruel and unusual punishment. And there are, in a lot of places, a lot of protections against being able to even know all the ins and outs of how the protocols work, what the drugs are. A lot of drug companies don't want to sell their drugs for execution, so for that reason it's very difficult for states like Tennessee to get the drugs that they need. You pair that with the fact that we have had a very tumultuous couple of years for the prisons with the pandemic. They have been a hot spot for outbreaks. They have a huge shortage of staff and Capital punishment is one of the most expensive, labor-intensive, complicated things that happen in the state in general, particularly in the prisons. So, um, you know, if there's any sort of issue potentially with the drugs and the protocols to kill someone at the hands of the state, the option is either to go forward and risk that it causes someone extreme pain and that could lead to all kinds of liability in the future, or you do what the governor did last night and you halted it the last minute to try to kind of get all your ducks in a row. Even before the governor's announcement last night, Oscar Smith's attorneys had raised concerns about the state's lethal injection protocols. What were they worried about? As I was saying, again, there's a lot of questions about how exactly lethal injection works, and there is evidence to suggest that it is far from this kind of idea that we have of a sort of humane or the most humane way possible to kill people. Um, not too long ago, someone was executed in Oklahoma using lethal injection, and that person was convulsing, vomiting. It took minutes for the execution to actually function. And, you know, I think there's a lot of fear that 
that could happen to others who are executed by lethal injection that it could essentially be torture and so in tennessee there's you know a few different options there lethal injection is kind of the default option but there are also some other options as well the electric chair for instance um, and some states are even moving toward potentially firing squads, gas. Mm. So it's all just a matter of having to face this very surreal situation where the state is killing someone and they are trying to find a way to do it. And it's not an easy thing to do, especially, you know, if you're if you're trying to minimize harm. You know, five of the seven people who have been executed in recent years chose death by electric chair. You witnessed one of those executions back in 2019. What was what was that like? It was a very surreal experience. And to just kind of give a little bit of explanation. So, as I said, the default for execution in Tennessee is lethal injection. But for crimes that were committed before 1999, people can also choose the electric chair. Yes, in in 2022, we're still allowed to use the electric chair in Tennessee. And when I witnessed, it was the execution of Lee Hall in December of 2019. And, you know, it felt like a very sterile experience. You show up to the prison, a dog sniffs your car to make sure you're not smuggling in drugs. They put a piece of tape on your window saying that you're coming for the execution you get to the parking lot there's all these journalists there's a tent set up with a you know a lectern ready for a press conference you go inside you go through what essentially feels like airport security metal detector you know all of that then we sat in a room we weren't allowed to bring anything in they gave us a giant ziploc baggie with a notebook and two number two pencils we sat there for about an hour then they took us to another room, and then they brought us into the death chamber where we're sitting in this little room. I think it was maybe three rows of chairs, completely dark, no lights, with a glass window in front of us. And then they just pull up the curtain, and suddenly right in front of you, you see this person, uh, you know, strapped to the electric chair. They put sponges on his head to make sure that he wouldn't burn when he was electrocuted and then they put a veil over his face so as this person is being killed in front of me I, I couldn't even see his eyes mm -hmm. all that I saw was his body literally lifting from the chair when the electric shock went through him um, and you're just you know you're taking notes you know as a journalist you have this responsibility to be a witness and to make sure that you know, everything is going as much according to plan as possible, um, but also you're trying to process as a human what's going on. And I think even more than two years later, I probably still haven't done a good enough job of that. But at the end of the day, Tennessee is killing people. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons and explanations as to why they and many other states do it. But as journalists, it's also our job that if we're aware of something like that um, is part of the law and the system in Tennessee, that we understand it to the best of our abilities and also that we provide transparency because a lot of things that happen in prisons, the whole point is kind of to keep it out of the view of the public so that people don't have to think about 
this uncomfortable, complicated thing that's happening. One of Oscar Smith's attorneys, Amy Hardwell, was actually in the death chamber with him when they learned that he'd be granted a reprieve. You spoke to her last night, just moments after she left the prison. Let's hear a little bit about what she said. Um, so Mr. Smith and his spiritual advisor and I had just finished um, taking communion. Um, the wardens actually lit, entered the death watch chamber right as the spiritual advisor was finishing the post-communion prayer. Um, and the spiritual advisor turned and offered to give communion to the wardens because he did not, of course, know why they were there. Um, and the wardens said they had some news and told Mr. Smith that there would be no execution tonight and that they'd be t moving him back to his unit. Um, it was so not what I was expecting to hear that some part of my brain kind of thought it was a macabre joke, but I knew that from the looks on their faces, they were very serious. Wow, that's hard to even imagine. Sam, what else did she tell you? What was she feeling in that moment? I think she was definitely feeling some relief, but also a little bit frazzled. I spoke to her as she and one of the other attorneys were, you know, just leaving the prison and, and about to meet up with the rest of their team. The other attorney, I actually broke the news to her after I got the email from the governor's office, and they were just trying to figure out what happens next. Um, they have been trying to, in recent days, appeal Oscar Smith's case. They've received some new evidence based on some new technology that they're saying questions um, his conviction. He has maintained his innocence the whole time he's been on death row, which has been more than 30 years, which many people do. Um, but he, you know, they're saying that there's this new evidence that shows perhaps someone else's uh, DNA on the weapon that was allegedly used to commit the murders that landed Oscar Smith on death row. So they have appealed that. Multiple courts have said that they don't want to reopen the case, but this kind of buys them some more time to pursue their options. So I think she was also feeling, you know, she was feeling good that she would have some more time to be able to keep fighting the case on on behalf of her client. What does this reprieve mean for the rest of the execution scheduled for this year? That is also a good question that we're not quite sure we know the answer to yet. So a reprieve, it basically, Oscar Smith has been granted a reprieve until June 1st, at least for now, which means not that he'll be executed on June 1st, but that on June 1st, the state could theoretically set a new date for him, which could be weeks, months, a year later, or they could keep extending the reprieve or just not decide to set a new date. But the whole point of the reprieve, supposedly, is for the state to review its lethal injection protocols. So if they haven't figured out how to get those protocols right before the next execution that's scheduled, then you would think that maybe more people would be granted a reprieve as well. And in the past, when we have had years go by without an execution, often it's been because of questions about the lethal injection protocols. So 
you know, there's a chance that this could be resolved quickly and we could still see multiple executions this year, or there's a chance that this could lead to yet another period of us not having executions while the state evaluates its options in terms of getting the drugs and, and all the systems in place that they need. That is WPLN criminal justice reporter Samantha Max. Sam, as always, thank you for your reporting and take care of yourself. Thanks, Cleo. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're switching gears to talk about green space. Who gets to enjoy it and who doesn't? Do you have stories to share about our greenways or questions about access to them? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Lake Colonna, and this is Nashville. Do you hear that? The soothing sounds of a gently flowing creek. Talk about ASMR. Let me be honest with you. I love being here in the Studio A at WPLN headquarters hosting this show. But when the weather is as nice as it is today, I wish we could record the show outside. Maybe sometime in the future, but for now, I'll just look longingly out the window, wishing I were soaking up some sun. Okay, it's Earth Day, y'all, so we're going to talk this hour about green space. To better understand what green space is exactly and why it's important, I would like to introduce my next guests. Kendra... Ac- pardon me. Kendra Abkowitz. Ap- serves as Chief Sustainability and Resilience Officer for the City of Nashville. She joins us now. Kenya, Kendra, I want to say I'm really, I really apologize for butchering your name. Sorry about that, sweetheart. No worries. Thanks, Khalil. It happens all the time. I bet it does. Happy Happy Earth Day. It happens to me, too. (laughs) Happy Earth Day as well. And David Padgett is Associate Professor of Geography at Tennessee State University. David, thanks for being here. Uh, Thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to the conversation. As as am I. So, David, I want to start with the basics. What is green space? Well, green space is anything that involves the natural uh, ecosystem that might happen to be in a city or trees, parks, uh, urban gardens, uh, greenways, green roofs. Uh, all of those are you know, part of the uh, urban ecosystem that add to quality of life and and health for urban residents. Is there a particular size requirement for an area to be declared a green space? Or is it like anywhere that has grass and trees? Yeah, it can be anywhere. I mean, there there are projects where um, medians are converted from being concrete to being uh, uh, tree-lined, which uh, is a great improvement to the um, aesthetic in terms of both um, visually and in terms of uh, even public health and, and other positive externalities. Kendra, I'm curious, how does the city acquire land for green space? Well, Khalil, that can happen a couple of different ways. Um, you know, it can be an outright acquisition that we're responsible for. It could be pursuing um land through a public-private partnership and working with a nonprofit um, or a trust to acquire that space. 
Um, it can also be redevelopment of existing space that we may actually own. Um, it could be a vacant lot that's currently being underutilized that we can kind of reprogram um, as a space. So there are a variety of different strategies that we have out there to make green space a thing. Um, there are also a variety of different policy mechanisms that we can use to create green spaces, such as some of those that David alluded to. So looking at things like restoring tree canopy, um, putting in green roofs, um, looking at different uh, green infrastructure improvements that can really add to that green space characteristic of the city are all things that we can compel through both carrots and sticks. So what's the thinking behind the location of these designated nature reserves in our city? Kendra. So that's a great question, Khalil. Um, I think something that's really important to us is increasing the uh, accessibility of our parks across the city. Um, so we know that parks provide really wonderful benefits for the entire community. Um, they're a vital part of Nashville's infrastructure, um, environmental, ecological, and social benefits. They can help manage stormwater, sequester carbon, clean the air, reduce heat island effects, um, result in energy savings, soil regeneration, the list goes on and on, right? They also support public health, mental health, and public safety. And so we see them as a critical asset and we want many of them um, across our city. Um, but again, when it comes down to proximity, um, that can be a challenge, especially if we're looking at a community that's developing incredibly rapidly, where real estate is a very, very hot commodity right now. And so our goal at Metro right now is to increase the percentage of Nashvillians who live within close proximity of a park, specifically within a 10 minute walk of a park. Um, we recently joined uh, something known that's, no, that's known as the 10 minute walk campaign. Um, that is a trust for public land campaign. We were the 300th city to join. Um, and, and really, again, it's just an effort to increase the availability and accessibility of our parks. Um, Right now, we're really focusing on those areas that historically have kind of been park or green space deserts. Um, and um, in our recent capital spending plan, we proposed a number of um, different new green spaces um, and, and um, areas throughout the city that are gonna open access to neighborhood green space in areas that historically have not had access to those kind of amenities. Um, so looking at Trinity Hills, um, areas off Tusculum Road in Antioch and along the Cumberland Riverfront. Um, so that's just a little bit about our strategy to increase green space in Nashville. This may seem obvious, but David, what are the health benefits of green space? Yeah, well, uh, trees can actually go a long way towards uh, cleaning air, uh, removing uh, particulate matter. Um, uh, green space can also lower uh, city temperatures. Uh, when temperatures in cities are elevated by concrete and asphalt in buildings, uh, it results in the development of ozone, uh, not the good ozone that's in the stratosphere that blocks ultraviolet rays. It's the, the bad ozone that we human beings create is in what we call the troposphere or the lowest layer of the atmosphere. Uh, when those ozone levels are elevated, uh, people who have respiratory problems uh, can be in real danger. Uh, it can increase asthma attacks. It can in, in, elevated ozone can increase pediatric asthma attacks, some of which can be fatal. 
Uh, but if you have trees and green roofs and other um, green space, pocket parks, anything that results in lowering those temperatures, uh, that can go a long way towards mitigating those potential threats to uh, health. Now, does where someone live determine their future health? Uh, yes, there's there's been numerous studies uh, by the Centers for Disease Control, the American Public Health Association, and others that basically say that one's zip code area is a greater predictor of his or her uh, health than your their DNA. And so what has happened historically with uh, redlining and especially redlining where certain communities were, were not eligible for home loans, which uh, resulted in those communities being disenfranchised, uh, even though redlining largely occurred in the 1950s and 60s, uh, we still see the uh, adverse impacts of those practices today. So the same communities that were redlined are the same communities that do not have parks, do not have trees, uh, do not have greenways, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so, um, yes, unfortunately, the legacy of urban discrimination and, uh, and housing discrimination uh, has its legacy in certain communities uh, being uh, under-resourced in terms of green space. You know, you mentioned this before about like in certain uh, highly dense areas, it becomes a heat island like North Nashville. And the same could be said for a lot of central Nashville. But, you know, I'm thinking about how heat, how it, it, it adds to cost of living, utilities for folks, and it's already stressed. Does that continue to add stresses to people? And is that a effect of having a lack of green space around? Oh, yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there are numerous studies uh, conducted. Uh, one of the uh, primary uh, research areas for um, urban heat islands is Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, there is a project being headed up by Dr. Ntaki Osborne at Spelman College, uh, looking at the uh, disparate impacts of urban heat uh, in Atlanta, uh, creating what are called uh, urban microclimates. Uh, and, and these heat islands, as they're called, can be extremely threatening to elderly populations. Um, probably historically, one of the worst case scenarios was, uh, I believe about 20 years ago, it was a, there was a heat wave that hit Chicago and so many people passed away from uh, heat. Uh, that they, they ran out of space in the morgues. It was a disastrous situation that can be, again, uh, in the, in the post-analysis of the Chicago heat wave, uh, the majority of the fatalities were in those communities uh, that were disenfranchised, did not have green space, and um, it was almost like a, a death trap. You know, I want to get back to accessibility for a moment. Kendra, two things. Are the green space here in Nashville, are they ADA compliant? And another, what is what steps are the city taking to make it more accessible for all of us? 
It's a great question, Khalil. So when we think about accessibility, it includes both physical and character elements. Um, so you noted ADA accessibility, that is a huge component of our parks. Um, and it even goes beyond that, um, including, you know, making sure that built infrastructure is designed so that it's conducive for use of all um, individuals. So in addition to ADA access, um, it, it, it includes thinking through where it's appropriate to have inclusive playground design with a variety of different sensory, social, and physical design elements, um, and also ensuring that, that our parks are free of charge. Um, you know, thinking less about, uh, thinking a, a little bit less about the physical components and, and more about making sure that our parks um, have a character that is closely tied to the community, um, they need to be community centric and really driven by the community interests and their priorities. And so that means that programming needs to be in, in alignment with the local neighborhood and the individuals who um, are going to be using that park. They need to be safe and welcoming. Um, and, and again, spaces that the community can own. And so um, again, it's much more than just thinking about um, ADA access. It's, it's again, trying to design a space that the community is proud of, um, feels comfortable using and wants wants to, to use. And that's going to really ensure that not only are we just citing parks in neighborhoods that um, need access to these spaces, they're actually using them as well. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville. I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. It's Earth Day. My guests are Kendra Abkowitz and David Padgett. Tweet us your questions about green space, parks, and greenways at This Is Nashville. I'd like to introduce my next guest. Ingrid Campbell is a plant captain for Root Nashville, and she's president of the McFerrin Park Neighborhood Association. Thanks for being here, Ingrid. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. It's our pleasure. Ingrid, I want to know, what makes green space so inviting to you? Well, my background, I've lived around green space. It was surrounding me through childhood. And I think everybody should have access to it. Um, being a, originally a New Yorker, um, it's just something that, and not in the city of New York, um, Westchester County area, it, it's necessary. It's just an element that's like drinking water to me. It's, it has a peaceful, calming um, way of affecting the mind, the spirit, the body. And I understand that tranquility that you can get from having these green spaces. You know, you're something of a tree advocate. Is that something, yes. it's something you really you want to focus on in your neighborhood. Tell me why is that so important to you? Well, the, the thing that I noticed in the neighborhood, um, because we are one of those areas that has suffered from redlining, uh, just the, the whole um, divisiveness of the 50s and 60s, you can see how um, people have are not don't have access to a cooler spot, a spot to just sit and enjoy. They had to make their own. Uh, but when you compare to other neighboring neighborhoods, you also realize that there was that opportunity to have it. And I think everyone should have that access to. There, when you realize that um, what a green space or having trees can do for your health, uh, what it can do for as um, soil erosion, what it does for noise pollution, um, what it does for just the value of your property. Why shouldn't you have that? Why shouldn't you understand that? Um, one thing that's key is that my neighborhood, McFerrin Park uh, community, 
has is like triangulated between Ellington Parkway, an overpass, and an interstate. We are the areas that definitely need it. We need all those filters. We need the trees. And the trees that we have are old and are dying. So we need to replace them. We have a lot of development in our community. We need not to just have development with structures that doesn't have a plan for green space. We need that. So um, yeah, it's a component that people don't realize the value and hopefully through this um, being a tree captain this year, I can actually help bring that awareness out. Kendra, you talked about trees earlier. What are Metro's goals for the tree canopy? So we have, um, in short, um, if I were to summarize it quickly, to uh, protect and restore our tree canopy. Um, but a little bit more specifically, one of our newer initiatives that we're incredibly proud of is the Root Nashville campaign. Um, and that is Metro's um, public-private partnership to support tree canopy restoration and maintenance on private properties in particular, and specifically with a goal of planting 500,000 trees in Davidson County by 2050. Um, and so this becomes a really great way for us to extend um, sort of the direct oversight that we have over tree planting on public properties into the private domain. Um, and again, we really rely on tree advocates and tree captains like Ingrid um, to make that program work. So it's a great partnership with nonprofits and the residents of the community. You know, David, I want to know about uh, what's, what's called as um, environmental gentrification. Talk to me about that. Like, how can we create and preserve green spaces for a community without hastening gentrification? Yeah, the actual uh, term is uh, green gentrification. And so what happens is uh, we might have uh, communities such as the community around um, the Joe Johnston community in North Nashville, which was adjacent to the Marathon Motor Works or Edge Hill, uh, had the old White Way Cleaners uh, site, uh, which was a de decayed uh, abandoned site as was the uh, Marathon Motor Works or where the old uh, thermal transfer plant used to be downtown. Uh, so those old rotting facilities uh, were close to or adjacent to uh, lower income communities. Um, but as properties like that are, are, are turned into uh, green space. I mean, you can argue that the uh, Ascend Amphitheater is a much brighter space than what was there. You know, the, the Marathon Motor Works is now Marathon Music Works. Um, the uh, uh, Edge Hill, um, we have Edge Hill Village in place of the uh, White Way Cleaner site. But what happens is when we uh, improve the aesthetic uh, of some of these old decaying uh, vestiges of the Industrial Revolution, uh, what comes next is increase in land values. People's homes are assessed. Uh, if people are renting, oftentimes the building gains value. The um, land owner or the building owner sells that building right out from under the, the, the renters. The next thing you know, the entire community turns over and the people who were suffering with the negative externalities associated with these decaying, rotting sites that are oftentimes called brownfields. Uh, when they're replaced with green fields, uh, the people who were living there at first who were disenfranchised 
can no longer afford to live there to enjoy uh, the, the, the new greener um, land spaces. And so it's a challenge on the part of cities to balance that. You know, how can we, you know, improve the uh, view shed of our cities um, and still have affordable housing uh, nearby? I mean, we can even look at, uh, for instance, uh, Bicentennial Mall. Uh, we were, some of us remember what that was like when the old, old farmer's market was there. And now once that space was changed, you can see the explosion of development around it that, I mean, high-end development in Germantown and across the street uh, into, I guess they're calling it Germantown West now, you know? Hmm. Uh, and so, um, I don't know, it's, it's, a diff it's a challenge. You know, you would like to have people who were disenfranchised enjoy the fruits of, of um, greening and, and green infrastructure improvement, but oftentimes that is not the case. I mean, I wonder if Germantown is big enough to have a designation of East or West, but that is for another show. All right, before we head to break, Ingrid, I'd like to ask you what questions you have for Kendra about how the city designs and distributes green space. Uh, yes, Kendra, I would, I was listening to what you were saying and um, the, I, I, my question is how often are the, uh, the parks or the green spaces inspected for ADA compliance and uh, seeing if it needs an update or getting community suggestions? How does one go about doing that as well? And um, yeah, and then the contact. Because we have some ideas in McFerrin Park that we would love to present. So Ingrid, I'm happy to connect you with folks in our Parks and Recreation Department to get them out um, to your neighborhood and to look at your space. Um, I don't um, readily know um, how frequently um, we are inspecting parks, um, but I am happy to find out for you and get back to you with some more information soon. Oh, great, great. Uh, yeah, the community is, is well, you know, uh, our community is right there on the border of uh, River North and East Bank. And mm -hmm. it's crazy how, how much the turnover is in the community, people coming in, uh, the people selling houses. And we even had a recent incident where a, there was a young man who is um, ADA, and we had to quickly return uh, a swing set that was uh, damaged, fire damage, and um, and how the community came together to get that done in four days. Wow, so, that's wonderful. Yes, but I would like to Very add impressive. a second. You know, we would like to add, add a second swing because there's only one swing. That's when yeah. I realized there's only one swing. You know, so it's things like that that we would like to um, identify and help the the community just have a healthier environment. Um, you know, the green space, people have asthma, more trees is good. It's a filter for them, for their lungs. You know, things that I'm trying to be, uh, have the community very much aware of. Yeah, no, I, I'm happy to connect with you um, and the community on that topic and make sure we get all the individuals in the room together. Um, green spaces, just as other environmental resources, um, really should be available to all communities. And so 
um, I'm committed to that and let's make it happen. And that's awesome. why that's why we're doing this show. Ingrid Campbell is going to hang with us through the break. David Patchett, Associate Professor of Geography at TSU and Kendra Abkowitz. Thank you. I got it. Nashville's Chief Sustainability Resilience Officer. Thank you both for being with us. Now go outside and have some fun, y'all. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion about green space and the haves and have nots. And we'll dive into solutions as our city continues to grow. Tweet us your questions and comments at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kaliole Colonna, and this is Nashville. Green space and greenways in our dense urban metropolis are crucial for our way of life. Having easy access to a nearby park or greenway benefits us in more ways than one. But we all don't have that access. As Nashville continues to grow and the cost of living keeps going up, rising affordable housing is hard to come by. Affordable housing near a green space, even more difficult. Let's talk about this. I'd like to welcome my next guests. Brent Elrod, he's the Managing Director at Urban Housing Solutions, and he joins us now. Brent, thank you for being here. Thank you, Khalil. Appreciate the opportunity. So tell me, why is it difficult to find affordable housing near green spaces? Well, I think, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, that uh, you know, usually where you have an open space, you obviously have you know open space that's not developed, so there is a an obvious kind of limitation on residential or other kind of development opportunities there. So that is sort of a you know constraint on the supply of other opportunities to you know places to live. Uh, but I think also and going really more essentially to the point that everyone's been discussing on this uh, show today is just the the uh, you know the deep connection that people have or, or need to have with you know open space, green space there's a real strong demand for that. So uh, where there are you know, very close connections to open space, those places tend to be uh, you know, very valuable, very uh, sought after, and that pushes up prices where there's already like a limitation on those opportunities, that extra demand just really you know, uh, kind of adds a, uh, in a, a, you know, almost like an exponential uh, in inflation you know, to the price. So how do we balance the density that comes with affordable housing with access to green space? It's certainly, you know, there's some tension with density and open space there, obviously. But uh, I think we were talking a little bit about uh, David Padgett mentioned uh, Atlanta and, you know, as a heat island uh, research that's happening there. I know Atlanta has a, a belt line where they're trying to convert uh, over many years, converting old, you know, uh, obsolete rail lines into greenways. And as a part of that plan, they are trying to build in, I think they've had some, you know, some challenges trying to do this, but trying to build in affordable housing uh, adjacent to and along that uh, kind of greenway infrastructure in the city to create more equitable access, which is a really great you know, model. Uh, I think they've had some challenges to really implement it fully, but I think that's something that that idea that the public, uh, you know, uh, that the government, the city government can acquire land and set aside some of that land for affordable housing, you know, and uh, have the other parts of that land, at least some parts of it be set aside for open space, green space that benefits the entire community. I think that really is really where we can begin to see more equity with access and uh, you know, all the benefits that come from, 
from that access to open space. Ingrid Campbell is still with us. Now, your neighborhood, McFerrin Park, has seen a lot of development in recent years. And we know that you're in communication with developers. So, Ingrid, when you've talked about providing improvements to the green spaces in your community, what has been their reaction? Well, currently the, the developer, the, well, several of the developers, their reaction has been positive. At first, it was a very listening ear to understand what I was asking and the things that I was pointing out along our walk for them to understand the relationship of the property that they were interested in in relationship to the community. And one, how the mature trees, which there are already there, can we continue to keep that as part of the component and what it offers to the, the residents that are on the other side of the property line? And what is your plan for the current um, property? You know, it is important that, you know, there is a green space that the residents of the new property can use as well as, you know, it's something accessible for the residents of the community. Um, so yeah, it's it was elevated. That was the number that was one of the top discussions, not the top, of course, but um, really just incorporating that. Make it more of a, you don't want uh, brick and mortar only, but you should have the green just kind of not only soften, but also be functional. So they were at least open to that. They were open and they are, that is part of, um, they're incorporating this on the ground level as well as some rooftop aspects. And um, there's a potential redesign even for the buffaloes on Dickerson to make it more of a park instead of just an isolated island that currently exists. So that has me thinking a lot about the quality of green spaces that are available. Yes. Brent, as yes. Urban Housing Solutions works to provide affordable housing, you know, what types of green spaces are you all considering? Well, uh, I think the, you know, really the best green spaces are the, the most open ones, the ones that are, you know, um, truly accessible to everybody. Uh, and that's really, I think, you know, open space, it connotes this openness and accessibility. I think that's really the ideal for the entire, you know, for our entire community to have access to larger spaces where everybody, you know, can come together from, you know, uh, across the neighborhood. But uh, sometimes that's not, it's easy to, you know, uh, have to be able to find a property for the reasons we were just talking about. So, uh, and like Ingrid was talking about there, you know, open space, even just small open uh, sort of pockets of green on a uh, urban property are really desirable, necessary. And uh, there are, you know, amenities that people try to build into market rate development, but they're, you know, they're essential for everybody, regardless of your income level. So we, we do try to create uh, and set aside anyway, some space for, uh, you know, green, common space for our residents to be able to enjoy on our properties where we have the opportunity to do that. Uh, because, you know, open space has always been like the commons. It's really been where people can come together, build community, you know, have uh, events, uh, artisan fairs, you know, uh, activities that really uh, can um, activate and bring people together and, and kind of build stronger social ties. So it's crucial really for community stability and for, um, you know, long-term, uh, you know, a success of a neighborhood to really have those uh, those spaces. How can the city and developers better engage community stakeholders when designing green space? Brent. Well, I think there, I mean, I don't I don't study, uh, you know, community planning like a, like a planner does. But I think there are, are I'm sure, you know, metrics of 
looking at, let's say, like acres of open space per capita or something, where you're looking at, you know, areas of density around the city and the amount of actual public open space that, you know, is provided to those residents. I think those are ways we can certainly look at where we are, uh, where there are disparities. And I think there clearly are some disparities. We, we have properties in Madison, for example, where Madison, I think, uh, at least just from my, you know, uh, uh, you know, unprofessional kind of view here, uh, it certainly it appears to be kind of deficient in, in the amount of public park space relative to the number of people. Uh, I think, you know, the Woodbine area seems to be another area where there's uh, a deficit. And, you know, those are, those are areas I think where we can really begin to target our resources and hopefully, you know, bring together neighbors and community members around, uh, you know, really what the community desires to, to see in their neighborhoods. Ingrid, I'd like to hear from you. How can the city and developers better engage community stakeholders when designing this re green spaces? Well, <clears throat> definitely it does need to be a joint conversation, but also I think we probably need to understand what that formula is for uh, coming up with a green space. Um, the number seems to be a little bit on the low side, um, but that's something that needs to be discussed. Uh, there's opportunities with some of the public. We have schools that have open fields. There's no trees. Um, again, that that can be a lot for uh, children that you know dealing with the heat and breathing and so forth. We have there's an opportunity to take up uh, to take advantage of that. But the it, it needs to be initial conversation when um, a developer has identified property or purchased a property and talk about planning and planning, understanding the community and uh, the community's goals. I know density is what Nashville wants, but there we need to look at how density can work hand in hand with having uh, green spaces incorporated into that plan. And kind of maybe not everything is a, um, all situations should be designate the same, but there are other areas that um, when some of these properties are evaluated, maybe it needs to be more of a green space and yeah. less of the structure. Things that we'll see it. That's Ingrid Campbell from McFerrin Park and Brent Elrod. Thank you both for joining us. All right. It's the end of the week and I'm going to hop out of my host chair into the passenger seat, sort of. We're doing a little bit of more of an environmentally friendly shotgun ride. I recently met up with Amy Crownover, Pete Wooten and Grant Winrow from Greenways for Nashville for a walk along Richland Creek Greenway. It got off to a rocky start. All right. Oh, yeah. Officially welcome now. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So you get the um, birds, you know, migratory birds, and then you have the resident birds that are here because of the water supply. Fish, of course. Mm -hmm. um, not up on the greenway, but <laughs> floating below. So you can see deer here. You can see skunk. You can see snakes. It is one of the eight river corridors that have greenways adjacent to them, and we're going to walk up to Richland Creek Greenway. You want to get off the beaten path, there's a little trail. You can come right down here all the way to the river. Mm -hmm. okay. And you know, and the nice thing about this, this requires, this part of the trail requires zero maintenance. It's just completely natural. And what happens, happens, you know. So it's, it's just a beautiful place. See how clear the water is? It's nice and clean. 
you look at a lot of the other metropolitan cities around the country, they have greenways, they have nature trails. Who wouldn't want to come down on a hot day and get off of the main trail, come down here and kick your feet in the water? What are you guys doing? Hey. We are talking about the greenways. That's How right. often are you out here? Every day. Every day? Every day. Twice a day or once a day? Once a day. Okay. Every day. Can't do without it. I'm out here when it rains. I'm, I get aggravated on sunny days when all these people are out here <laughs> because, you know, I mean, you can almost not get parking. Okay. So what's going on? Who's this guy? So this is Pete Wooten. Do you know Pete? Brooks um, Katzman. Brooks uh, is an old friend. So I'm the board president of the Greenways and I'm partnered with Amy. Yeah, you're partnered. Yeah, that's, that's right. what I, that was the question here. No, no, no. He's not no. partnered in that way. Oh. <laughs> well, I'll take him. <laughs> no. But you look good. Please. We aren't live, are we? No. no, no. <laughs> I'm wanted for the law. No. Okay. Right. And uh -huh. so we were strolling. Right. It's only been here, what, 10 years, 15 years? 15, I'd say. This yeah, but one. it was until it, it just made a huge difference in so the Brooks whole neighborhood. So Brooks will email me if anything, if there's a tree down, <laughs> I get a text. That he if lets somebody's me know. swinging on the ridge, I send her a video. <laughs> and she says, oh, that looks like fun. I'd do it. <laughs> I'm alarmed. He is an example of a community member who embraces and loves this place. I do it every day, and, and it's a communal thing. I know a ton of people out here from walking every day. You for, just see them all the time. Yeah, I've been, yeah. You know, I've been walking here for at different times for 15 years, and so there are all these people, and I can just walk and see people and say hello, and some people I really know well, and some people are just acquaintances, and you know. But I like I might see Amy or anybody, and it just lifts my spirits. It just makes a whole difference in my whole day. Every day, it's the top of the list. This is what's got to get done. All right, I may have fallen at the start of that walk, and yes, I still may be a little bit bruised, but it was nice to get some fresh air this week. I hope y'all can do the same this weekend. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Limley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. Shout out to our news director, Emily Siner, and our theme musicians, LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you on Monday, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>